we've all grown up hearing the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's a lie. Frederick Nietzsche came up with that phrase back in the 1800s, shortly before he died in an insane asylum. We can let go of that one now. It is not our abusers. It is not our past. It is not our pain that makes us stronger. We already have this strength within us. We just need to grab out those shovels and dig deep to be able to find that strength within us. You've got it. And not knowing what options are available to you is, is the same thing as not having options. Find the resources that are designed to be able to help you through whatever it is that you're going through and use them. There are people that care and want to take care of you and help you through it. Welcome to the Pinky J Podcast. Yes, Pinky is my real name. Not sure what my mom was thinking when she named me. Let's get real on this podcast and talk about taboo topics, trauma, and life experiences. I am here to inspire and motivate anyone who's going through a tough time. Remember, you're not alone, you are worthy, and you're enough. Tune in to listen to different stories and different experiences. Hey everyone, welcome to one more episode of Pinky J Podcast. Today I am super excited to be interviewing Amanda Blackwood. Um, Her story is just amazing. She experienced human trafficking, not once, not twice, but three times. So I'm super excited for you all to hear her experience and how she overcame her trauma and became a trauma mentor. Amanda, thank you so much for being part of this episode. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. And how are you doing? I'm great. So (laughs) tell me more about your story. How did it start? And how old were you? That's always the first question I get. And that's because... The majority of people here in the U.S. believe that human trafficking typically only happens to people under the age of 18. In reality, people under the age of 18 only make up one quarter of all victims. So the first time I was trafficked, I was actually 18 years old. And it's important to understand what trafficking is before we go too far into this. So the Department of Homeland Security has the most comprehensive and understandable definition. It is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or commercial sex acts from another person. So if you notice, there's no mention of transportation, there's no mention of money, there's no mention of age. So we're talking about underage kids being kidnapped. There's no mention of that. Smuggling and prostitution and all this stuff, while there's a huge overlap with human trafficking, one does not equal the other. These are all separate issues that all need to be addressed. With most victims of human trafficking, we're no strangers to abuse in our early childhood. And that was definitely the case with me. So it kind of programmed me and led me down this path. So when I was four was the first time I ever remember being molested. I was molested again throughout my preteen and teen years by family members, by strangers at the swimming pool, by a stranger at a parking lot. All these different events kept on leading me down this path of constantly thinking, this is what my life is going to be. This is who I am. This is what people are going to do to me no matter what. And I ended up looking for love and acceptance wherever I could get it because I didn't feel like I'd ever had that. And traffickers, what they do is they pinpoint somebody's needs and they promise to fulfill those needs. And in that, they strike up this level of trust and this level of dependency And later on, they can force them to do things that they don't want to do. So knowing that now, it's probably easier to understand that less than 15% of all victims of human trafficking are actually kidnapped victims. That is because the people that you kidnap are going to fight back like their life depends on it. The people that you manipulate emotionally are not. 
So the first person that ever trafficked me when I was 18 years old was a guy that I had been dating and living with. He was more than twice my age and he basically loaned me out for a birthday party weekend. I was molested and raped repeatedly for a period of 52 hours. Wow. I wasn't able to leave. I couldn't go anywhere. I was in a hotel room, but I was able to get room service at least once a day, but the hotel staff had been paid off to leave it at the door and not ask questions and not make any kind of contact with me whatsoever. So there's what? ways that they manipulate things and they manipulate the environment around them to make sure that what they're doing, they can get away with continuing to do. When that ended, that 52 hours, I did everything I could to just get out of there. I packed my bags and basically was homeless for a little while. I slept on other people's couches. I didn't have a place of my own for many years. Um, eventually I'd made my way down to that. The first instance was in Arizona. And the second time I had gone to Florida, my plan was to stay with my grandmother while I got a very much needed surgery done on my knee. I was going to stay with her while I recuperated. My parents called them and told my grandmother that if she took me in, they would never speak to her again. Again, I was stuck on the side of the road completely homeless with nowhere to go. I had $5 to my name. Wow. So this young couple found me at the bus station and they told me they had a place for me to stay and they would allow me to stay with them rent-free until I could get on my feet. But what they actually meant was they were going to allow me to stay with them rent-free until they found the highest bidder because they were still going to make money out of the situation. They sold me to somebody named Esteban who locked me up in a small room for 23 and a half hours. And when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was this fabulous TV show on called MacGyver. The man could fix anything with a roll of duct tape, a rubber band, and a paperclip. I loved that show. And in this moment of high stress of being locked in this small room with no physical way to get out of there and knowing that I had nothing left to lose except my life, I sat down and I thought, what would MacGyver do? And I MacGyvered my way out of that room. It was this really bizarre experience when I got out, I took off running down the street. He was chasing me. He jumped in his car to come chasing after me. And the first person that I saw that I could flag down was a, a police officer. It was a female. And I started trying to tell her everything that had happened, but I was standing there in this drug infested part of Florida with high, high levels of prostitution and crime. And I could tell from the look on her face that she didn't believe me. Knowing that I'm standing there face to face with a police officer who should be able to help me and knowing that she doesn't believe me, it hurt to the core. And as I was getting ready to turn around and leave and just leave her behind also, she saw him do an illegal U-turn and she went after him. And I never followed up to see if he was arrested, to see if that place had been um, emptied out of the other people that I knew had been locked in there. I never went back and I had this tremendous amount of survivor's guilt for a long time. I got out of Florida as quickly as I could. I ended up finally moving all the way out to California because that was as far from Florida as I could possibly get. <laughs> and in 2004 is when internet dating started becoming a thing. And I met a guy who lived somewhere else and we had this kind of long distance thing going on. We really enjoyed each other's company, but he was overseas and I was in the States. We had lives of our own. We knew that we weren't going to be able to have any kind of relationship outside of just this friendship. But we did get on Skype because that was a big thing at the time. And while he was eating breakfast, I would be eating dinner and we would share a meal together. It was 
pretty cool. You know, we got to know each other really well. And this over a period of seven years, I went over to go visit him. He came over to visit me. During all of that time, I had gotten into acting and I was on Alias and Will and Grace and I modeled for Harley Davidson. I did a lot of really cool stuff out there in LA. I got myself a job working as a mall cop, which doesn't sound all that cool. Um, But (laughs) within five months, I had gone from being the new person to having busted open an embezzlement ring that my boss had run taking over as the director of public safety and security for six different properties in LA County. I got an $11,000 a year raise. I got raises for all of my employees. I worked so hard to get to where I was. And this man that was overseas that I'd gotten to know for so long, he asked me to get a fiance visa and move to Scotland to go and be with him. And I jumped at this chance. I gave up my job. I gave up my car, my apartment. I mean, I'd known this guy for seven years. He loved me and I loved him. And I was going to move over there to the land of kings and castles. And we were going to live happily ever after. This is what every little girl dreams of who ever grew up watching Disney movies. It took him seven years to get me there. And it took him seven days to start trafficking me. I'm I'm so speechless because you've been through so much and... This story about seven years thinking you know someone and he was going to give you the world and your dream come true. And within seven days, he ruined your life again. Right. And he had my passport and he had my debit card, my my ID card, driver's license, everything. He had absolute control over me. But he also had a drinking problem. So I was able to use that to my advantage. (laughs) At least you had an advantage, you know. (laughs) Absolutely. And I used it to my advantage a couple of different times. The first time it was pretty early on. I got, I made sure that I kept on filling up his whiskey glass one night while the abuse was happening. I was basically the house slave um, that was, I was repeatedly uh, raped and assaulted by these guests that would come over. And I, it was my job to make sure that everybody was happy and comfortable. So without asking, I just constantly filled up his whiskey glass. And at the end of the night, he was so drunk that when I told him I needed to get my stuff back from him, my passport, my driver's license, debit card, it was so that I could go to the bank and get out what money I had so that I could give it to him and we could spend it. In reality, what I did was jump on the computer the next morning with a pretty serious hangover myself um, and try to get the first flight out that I could afford. I only had about $2,000 in my bank. So I wasn't able to get the next flight out, which was like something like $12,000 something ridiculous. I couldn't mm-hmm. get the next day or the day after that. I had to wait five days for a flight that I could afford. But I said to myself, this is a very dangerous mindset that you don't ever want to get stuck in. I've been through worse. I can get through the next five days. Because during those five days, I was so abused that I ended up with a kidney that was shutting down on me. And I was in the hospital when that flight took off. It was a non-refundable ticket. And all I had was $11 left in my bank. And your mindset was, I'm going to fight through this at all times. Throughout your quality experience, which is amazing because not everybody will have that mindset. They'll just give up. Right. And I think it goes well with my red hair. Um, (laughs) Redheads are known for being stubborn. But I learned really early on. My first sentence when I was just a little, little toddler was I do it by self. And that was almost the name of my autobiography because I've always had that mindset. But when you grow up with this 
this abuse is constantly around you, you learn very early on that you cannot trust the people around you. It is up to you and you cannot ask for help. You are hyper independent. And these are all trauma responses that helped me to get through all of this stuff. And with all that, were you able to come back to the States even after being in the hospital and not be able to fly out? Eventually I was, um, but not until after a suicide attempt. I, a little boy at a train station who was about four years old stopped me from going through with it. I'll never forget his face. I still see it when I close my eyes sometimes. But eventually I, I had learned throughout the years to study some psychology on my own. And I'd learned about what we used to call Stockholm syndrome. We now call trauma bonding. And I learned enough about it to where I learned how to leave little breadcrumbs and making him believe that I would do anything for him. And finally, it was towards the end of my six month visa. I'd been there for five months and my, I sat him down and I said, you know, we've got a couple of choices here. The day that we had picked out as the day that we were supposed to get married to be able to get a fiance visa, that day has come and gone. So we have a couple of options. We can either, you know, get married, which I was really hoping it didn't take that route, or <laughs> we could send me back now. And if we send me back, I can come back in six months and we can pick up our lives and I could come back in time for Christmas. It would be our first Christmas together. Wouldn't that be beautiful? And he bought all of that hook, line, and sinker. When you but start to the, manipulate him, how he right. was manipulating you. And the biggest selling point for me was that I told him that if I overstayed my visa, he could lose his job since he was a police officer. And he yeah. didn't want to lose his job as a cop. So. He bought me a round trip flight to go back to LA and to return in time for Christmas. And of course, I never went back. I got back to the States and I did my best to just completely disappear. And he never tried to come find you? Oh, he did. I saw him banging on the neighbor's door. He had my address off by one number. Oof. He was right there. He was within reach. If I had opened the door, he could have. I don't know if he was there to apologize or kiss me or kill me. And it doesn't matter. We do not need, this was a hard lesson for me, we do not need to receive an apology from the people who hurt us. Why would we want to put our own mental health and our own physical safety back in the hands who, of the people who tried to break us in the first place? It is not their place to apologize to us and it is not our place to ask for one. It's so I true. kept the door closed. And from there on, you're able to start a new life. I did try. Uh, he had taken a bunch of photos and videos of me during the molestations and rapes. And every time I got a new job, he would put all of this stuff together in an email and he would email it to the new boss. He would send this over to anybody he found out had become a friend of mine. I lost friendships. I lost jobs. It was a constant cycle of just this absolute torture of attack. And I tried to report him to his superiors. I took those same emails that he had been sending out and tried to turn them around and use them back on him. And within a couple of months, I got a response from a full investigation, supposedly, that happened over there in Scotland, where they claimed that they saw no evidence of wrongdoing. Oh, he paid them off 100%. There's... <laughs> yeah. No way. I mean, he's a police officer. They're, they want to protect their own. And back then, this was 2011, I was 31 years old. 
they didn't want to admit that human trafficking happened at all. They really didn't have enough of an education what human trafficking was. And even if they did, they still wouldn't have been able to do much to help me because I was over the age of 18 when it happened. We still have laws in place now that help to protect anybody under the age of 18. But the people who are victimized and manipulated and abused over the age of 18, you're on your own. And that's a problem because not everyone's educated on what exactly human trafficking is. Right. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't fully educated till I spoke to you and I fully understood because you look at the media or documentaries or movies, even movies and shows like that have human trafficking. And it's just that small little bit that you talked about at the beginning, but there's a lot more to it. Right. What we see the most in documentaries or movies that involve human trafficking covers such a small percentage because it is something that can be hyper sensationalized and draw more attention and get more people to donate their money to this cause because they think it's only happening to these little kids that are getting kidnapped. Right. And there's a lot more than that. What's going on? And it's so sad because women fall for this. You know, because oh, yeah. they, they want that, that love, like you said, that love, yes, this beautiful dream that they always been wanting this life. And unfortunately, when you fall, it's like you three times. And thankfully, you were able to overcome it. But I'm sure you went through a lot of trauma, even I'm sure till today. So how did you overcome all of this? I had to hit rock bottom before I was able to climb out of the hole that somebody else had dug. In 2019, well, in 2016, I finally packed up and left LA. I was tired of getting attacked out there. I needed to start over and I moved to Colorado. And in 2019, I discovered uh, the hard way that he had put up all those photos and videos of me being raped on different pornography websites and had made me famous. And he connected it to my social medias so that people could find me and follow me and reach out to me. But of all of that, the most devastating thing for me was when I was recognized in a grocery store and a man asked me for my autograph, not because I was on Alias or Will and Grace and I'd been modeling for Harley Davidson, any of the cool stuff that I ever did. Right. I was recognized for being raped on a pornography video. I was completely destroyed. I didn't know how I was going to get through this. I wasn't sure I wanted to get through this. And I reached out to a couple of different anti-trafficking organizations. I had just the re year before learned that what I'd been through even had a name. I didn't know before that. And the first organization put me, uh, paired me up with a pro bono legal service to be able to help reach out to these pornography websites and tell them that they needed to pull this stuff down or they were at risk of being sued. Okay. And every single time one came down, another one went up. In some cases, one came down and two or three more went up. And I was still trying to figure out how am I going to deal with this? I need to move beyond feeling like I'm still being victimized, even though I was still being victimized. He was making money off of me still. So I re reached out to another uh, anti-trafficking organization. They paired me up with a therapist. And this therapist was really new to the industry. I am so sure that I absolutely traumatized this woman so much that she has <laughs> left the practice completely. So then they got me a different therapist. And when I went into this other therapist, right off the bat, I was very forward with her. I said, I have two conditions here. Number one, do not come at me with prescription medication. I do not want a Band-Aid. I want a shovel. And number two, do not walk on eggshells. Do not pull the punches. Do not treat me like I'm some breakable porcelain doll. If I was going to break, I would have done it already. Let's get to work. I need to get this done. About a year and a half of therapy with several different kinds, including EMDR and tapping, I was able to 
process a lot of everything that I had been through and kind of move through it. And in November of 2020, she asked me, she said, I don't know that there's much more that I can do to help you right now. I know you well enough to know that you're not going to stop your own journey, but what are your plans? What are you going to do now? And I said, you know, I think I'm finally ready to write my book. She said, don't you already have one? I said, yeah, I've got several, but not the book. She said, well, that's fantastic. Um, it's November now. I'll tell you what, let's get through the Christmas season. If you need me, I'll be here for you, but I'll reach out to you in January. So in January, I think around January 6th, she reached out to me and said, so how's the book going? And I told her, oh, it's done. She said, what? Is it a short book? I said, no, it's 350 pages. She said, how, aren't you still working two full times? How did you do an entire 350 page book? I was like, you know, when you're ready, when you know that you're ready, it's like these floodgates open and no matter what you do, you can't stop writing it. There were nights that I would stay up until three o'clock in the morning writing my book. I could not stop. I couldn't walk away from it. I had to take all of this poison that everybody else had dumped into me all these years and get it out on the paper because when I got it out, I could literally physically walk away from it. It was no longer a part of me. It was a part of the paper. It was a part of the computer. It was a part of this thing I was creating. It was a part of the past. I could leave it behind. And she said, well, now what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not sure. <laughs> She said, I want you to try painting. And I told I said, everything I've ever tried to paint ends up looking like a multicolored snowman. It is a bunch of co colorful blobs on a page. I am not an artist. I don't paint. Right. She said, I want you to try anyway. She said, I'm sending over somebody with paintbrushes and canvases and paints. And I just want you to try. Within three months, I sold my first piece of art. It was a sunset painting. And I sold it back to the anti-trafficking organization that paired me up with the counselors in the first place. They made prints of it and sold the prints to be able to afford to pay for counseling and therapy for other survivors of human trafficking. Within five months, I painted the piece that you see behind me here. It's called oh, wow. Carry Your Own Baggage. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's about how we all have to carry our own emotional baggage through life while we look for a safe place to set it down. And this is a print of the original. The original is hanging in a home for human trafficking survivors in Chicago, Illinois, with the essay. And the Chicago Tribune at that point wrote an article about me that included this piece of art when it was unveiled and my autobiography that was published in June of 2021. And doing all of these things, having these creative outlets, having the therapy, all of this stuff combined is what helped me to be able to move beyond the trauma and beyond that pain and that hurt so much so that the month after my autobiography was published was when I met my husband. That's amazing. And now you got, and you got married and now you finally are happy and live the life that you deserve. Absolutely. My husband and I, uh, our wedding was in January of last year. So we've been married. Thank you. We've been married for about a year and a half now. Um, my son that I had back when I was 20, uh, he and his wife just had a baby. So I'm now a grandmother. And oh, my husband's, so thank you. And my husband, uh, his daughter, um, she and her husband are expecting their first baby by the end of this year. So I'll be a grandmother twice before the year ends. Wow. That's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> you thank see you. how your story changed and is very inspirational um, because not everyone, what you went through will be able to overcome. So what's the name of, what's the name of your book? 
So I only have several, but what's the the it book? <laughs> the it book. Uh, my autobiography is called Custom Justice. It's impossible, absolutely impossible to prosecute somebody for human trafficking across international borders, but okay. it's not impossible to have your own justice if you know how to do it right. So okay. Custom Justice. Check it out, purchase it. It's I'm sure it's an amazing book. And you also have podcasts as well, correct? I do. I actually have three podcasts these days. Wow. <laughs> You're you're very busy. <laughs> Always. Funny. Is there anything you want to tell the listeners, um, like an inspirational quote or anything before we wrap it up? Absolutely. Um, we've all grown up hearing the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's a lie. Frederick Nietzsche came up with that phrase back in the 1800s, shortly before he died in an insane asylum. We can let go of that one now. It is not our abusers. It is not our past. It is not our pain that makes us stronger. We already have this strength within us. We just need to grab out those shovels and dig deep to be able to find that strength within us. You've got it. And not knowing what options are available to you is, is the same thing as not having options. Find the resources that are designed to be able to help you through whatever it is that you're going through and use them. There are people that care and want to take care of you and help you through it. Amazing. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Amanda. Please purchase her books and listen to her podcast. Amazing story. Amazing, strong woman right here. Thank you so much, Amanda. I really, really appreciate you coming in and talking, being so open and vulnerable about your story. Absolutely. Thank you, Pinky.